My faith was severely challenged and shaken in undergraduate school. I was in a state institution in New Jersey um, when that happened. I believe that there was a real attempt to destroy whatever remnant of faith that freshmen brought into the institution, and the assault was especially strong and direct uh, in my department, which was the Department of History. Uh, When we studied world history, world cultures, there were professors who tried to prove, tried to show that Christianity and Judaism were just more of the myths that people come up with to uh, explain the origins of things, uh, and that they were myths that were created to give people the hope that there was life that existed after the grave. They pointed out every opportunity they got, and some of these people knew Scripture well, their perceived inconsistencies in the Scriptures. They actually celebrated uh, what they saw there as apparent inconsistencies in the Scripture and in religious systems. Now, what brought stability back to my faith was an ever-increasing assurance that the Bible has got to have God as its ultimate author, just like the Bible claims that it does. That assurance came from finding unity and consistency within the individual books of the Bible and also finding that consistency between the books that make up the Holy uh, Scriptures. And I would suggest to you, I would submit to you that the more a person studies the Scripture, the more they begin to see that, the unity, the consistency of Scripture, the more they begin to see that there's one message from Genesis all the way through to the final book in our canon, the book of the Revelation, that this message, though written by some 39 different authors over a period of some 1,500 years, never contradicts. It's never inconsistent. There are sometimes things that we see that appear that way, but when you really study the Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture, you find that that is not true. Now, one of the things that I think that Matthew has for us as a big idea in the text that we look at today is that Jesus is the only Savior of the world, and that is a message that you see throughout Scripture. And we have a small example of this unity and consistency of Scripture in Matthew's account to us, the account that he gives us of the visit of the Magi to the Christ child, and also what we see in the rest of the gospel that he's written. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, this gospel writer, Matthew, records some of Jesus' last words, his parting words to the infant church. And some of you can quote these words um, by memory. You know that Jesus says there to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus commands his followers to take the salvation that he has purchased by his birth, his death, his resurrection to the whole world. He says, in effect, to the church, Don't sequester the good news here among our own people, the Jews. Take it to the nations. Take it to the Gentiles. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, 
Matthew records an event at the very uh, beginning, or almost the very beginning, of the life of Jesus. And what does he show us? He shows us Gentiles being led by God to the Christ who made atonement, not just for the sins of the Jews, but for the sins of the whole world. He writes in our text, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, Magi came from the east, from outside of Israel, and asked, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? Now, Matthew is a tax collector, but that doesn't mean he could not be an incredibly gifted writer. And it could be that on his own, he ties all that he writes brilliantly together and shows an incredible consistency and unity throughout his Scripture. That's a possibility. We have to allow that. But what I'm telling you is what you see in individual books of the Bible, and the Bible as a whole is this unity and consistency that looks like it's far too good to come from the hands of individual men. You see it throughout the Bible. The Bible itself teaches in 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, and many other places in Scripture that the Bible is written by human authors, but that the author behind the human authors is none other than God himself. Now think about Luke. Luke in his gospel records Simeon praising God as he holds the baby Jesus in his arms. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 32, Simeon exclaims this, For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. He puts the Gentiles first. Luke's message, you see, is identical to that of Matthew's and also John's. And what is that message? The message is that God so loved the world, the world of Jews and Gentiles, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him has everlasting life. John 3.16. Now, if you have doubts about the Bible, and this is the only book that really can lead you to fellowship with God now and forever, the message contained in this book, I would suggest that you study the Scriptures very carefully. We had a man in our church who now lives in Lancaster who was a non-believer. Somebody gave him a Bible. He had a job as a young man on an Exxon tanker, and out in the ocean reading the Scripture, he saw the consistency of Scripture and came to understand that this book is like no other book, and he accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. So if you have trouble with the book, study the book and see what's here but continue to attend Faith Presbyterian, where the Bible is held in high regard, where it is believed and taught to be the inerrant and unfallible, infallible Word of God, and ask questions about the Scriptures. One of my problems was that I was afraid to ask people in a very good church questions that related to my doubts. I thought they would think he's a horrible pagan and take him off and burn him at the stake. That would not have been the case at all, of course. But ask questions. We have thought probably about the things that you think about where your doubt intersects Scripture. 
Now, what do we know about these Gentiles who arrive in Jerusalem seeking to find Jesus? Well, we know that they're called magi or wise men. That's what the word means. And we know they're from the east. Now, east of Jerusalem could be Persia, it could be Babylon, it could be parts of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. We don't know exactly where they're from. Typically, magi in these places, however, were astronomers and also astrologers, that they would try to predict things from what they see in the heavens. We see that in Scripture, Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, Daniel 4, 7. We also know that these men were prompted to seek out Jesus and to worship him by a star that they saw when they were in their own country, something in the heavens. Matthew 2, 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And we also know that they have a passion to worship this king. The word worship can mean to pay homage or respect to a person who is greater than us. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean religious kind of adoration. But from what Matthew tells us, it is most reasonable to believe that the intent of the Magi is to worship this king of the Jews as a god. They have seen a supernatural happening in the heavens, the place where God dwells. They have come to the religious center of Jerusalem to inquire about this king. And when King Herod, told by his religious leaders in Israel that the Old Testament prophesies the birth of the Messiah king to be in Bethlehem, he tells the Magi to find the child and report to him so that he too can go and worship him. Now, we know from the rest of the story that this very insecure ruler of the Jews uh, wants to put this threat to his throne to death. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, uh, Matthew tells us that Herod orders all the baby boys two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding area to be murdered. But when Herod tells the Magi that he desires to worship the promised Messiah of Scripture, the whole context here speaks of religious adoration. Now, there are many things that we would like to know about the Magi that Matthew just doesn't tell us. Uh, one pastor said that if Matthew had been a reporter at this event, he would have been fired by his editor because there's not a whole lot of detail. Where exactly are these men from? We would like to know that. Were they royalty? Were they really three kings from Orient, you know? How long was their journey? How many of them came? Magi's plural. We know there had to be at least two. But we don't know how many magi were there. We know there were three gifts, but two people could have brought three gifts, or 30 people could have brought three gifts, all chipping in to purchase the gold the frankincense, and myrrh. We just don't know. Did the Magi have access to the Holy Scriptures? Did the Jews, when they were in Babylon, take the Word of God and it stayed there, and these men got exposed to it, so they were looking for the King of the Jews? Did, did the Word get there by Jewish travelers, we'd like to know, or traders? Uh, we would like to know more about the star. People have written so many volumes on this. It's, it's kind of funny to me, but anyway, they have. Was it a comet? 
Was it some unusual alignment of planets? Was it a guiding light that God created for this specific purpose? We just don't know. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of detail. And I think that's because he doesn't want us to lose the central theme of all of the narrative, which is that the child, these people from outside Israel come to worship, is the only Savior for the entire world. God is drawing these men to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem to destroy the teaching that there are different paths to God. Jesus, shortly before he goes to the cross, will say in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what you see in our text is God portraying that truth that's throughout the Scripture right here for us in this event. Now, we don't act like we believe that Jesus is the only way to life with God, do we? I mean, most of us, if we were to do a survey here today, would say that we believe that Jesus is absolutely the only way that you can have sins forgiven and have life forever with God. But if we really believed that, if we really truly believed it, wouldn't we be more actively engaged in sharing our faith with the people in our worlds who don't know the message of the gospel. See, we assume and, and, and we say that we believe that Jesus is the only Savior of the world, but we live most of the time like universalists. Universalists teach that God in His mercy at the end of the day will accept everybody into His eternal kingdom. We need the message of the Magi to grip us. If it gripped us, it might drive us to share the gospel with our unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, to come overcome our fears and share our faith. It might move us to pray more for those in our worlds who don't know Jesus as Savior. It might motivate us to give more of our resources, material resources, to get the gospel to people like these men who were away from the places where you could be exposed to the gospel readily, we would maybe send more people to take the truth to people who were not in a position like the people were in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. We also see in our text that people far from Jesus can come to him, people far from Jesus can come to him. Now, Matthew is Jewish, and he wants his people to receive Jesus as their Savior and King. But the first story he tells about Jesus, now, in chapter 1, he talks about Joseph and how the birth of Jesus would take place. But the first story he tells about Jesus is this one, where Jesus is worshipped by once pagan Gentiles. When the Magi from outside of Israel show up in Jerusalem, looking for the king of the Jews so they can worship him, almost nobody in Israel is looking for Messiah's birth. The Magi ask where they can find Jesus, and what we think they're greeted by is just blank stares from the people they ask. The people were surprised by the inquiries of the Magi. And those people are all people 
who heard the Scriptures read in their synagogue every Saturday. They went to Hebrew school. They had the law and the prophets. It was part of their culture. They were God's covenant people, at least outwardly so, and they worshiped at the temple. Now, if Herod's calculations about the age of Jesus are in any way correct, and I would suggest knowing a little bit about Herod, he would build in a margin for error. But if they're anywhere near accurate, Jesus is pushing two years of age. You know, he's probably 18 months old, 20 months old. Jesus is probably walking and talking and doing the things that little kids do at that age. But most of the Jews in Jerusalem are still ignoring the one who is the most stupendous person in all of history. They are missing this event that is an incredible event, that God has taken human flesh and a human soul and made his dwelling among humans. Now, the current king of the Jews, Herod, is a Roman puppet. He doesn't know where the Messiah is going to be born. And when he summons his religious leaders, they immediately tell him that Micah, writing some, you know, about 700 years earlier, had written that the Messiah king would come from Bethlehem. But think about these religious professionals. They are not eagerly awaiting Messiah's arrival, are they? When they hear that it may have come, they're incredulous. They have no desire to investigate the possibility of God's Messiah being in Bethlehem, which is five and a half miles away, about an hour and a half leisurely walk. They don't have much interest. They don't have any interest in that. When Herod heard about the Magi from the east searching for the newly born king of the Jews in verse 3, it says he was disturbed. Now, that can, be, um, that can mean deeply troubled, or it can mean absolutely terrified. The same word can have that range of meaning. He's terrified or deeply troubled that the Messiah has come, and his res- <clears throat> response is to put in place a plan to eradicate the one who could possibly be a threat to his throne or to his family line on the throne. Verse 3 records that all of Jerusalem was troubled or terrified with him. So it's not just Herod, but it's the people of the city. These inhabitants no doubt fear that if this king of the Jews has been born, that probably something bad will happen to them, that Herod will indeed do something bad uh, to get rid of this one, to purge the country of this one, or that the Romans will come and bring reprisals against them. But think about this. They would rather have life go on as it is for them than to have the Messiah come and their lives be changed by his coming. Now, again, these people are religious people who live within the heart of revealed religion, God's revealed religion. They live in the city where the sacrifices are made continually that point to the servant king, the suffering Messiah, who will come and be pierced for our iniquities, who will have our sins placed upon him, and by whose stripes we are healed. They live where those sacrifices that point to that one take place all the time. But no one 
is organizing a pilgrimage to get a bunch of people to go to see if the Magi are right, to see if the Messiah has really come. Now, what is Matthew showing us here? I think he's showing us that people who live within the church, people who have the Scriptures in their hands and even in their minds, who regularly hear God's Word read and proclaimed, who go through the external rituals of God-centered, God-ordained worship, can be as lost as those who have never heard God's way of salvation. Matthew shows us that the pagan magi from the east are actually closer to eternal life than the current rulers of the Jews, the chief priests and the teachers of Holy Scripture, and the Jewish church members in the Holy City. Now, of course, part of the reason that these people, these religious, well-taught people, uh, don't go looking for a Savior is because they don't think they really need a Savior. They think, like religious people often do, that they are okay with God, and God is okay with them. Now, some of you know my story. Um, You've known it for a long time. I've only pastored two churches. But I have to tell you, my concern in both of those churches is that there would be people who would come to church, who would be well-taught, who would join the church, who would serve in the church, but never really have the real thing. They would have the culture of the church, but never really have the Christ of the church. I've worried about that. I've especially worried about it for our kids for my kids, for your kids, for some of you who grew up in this church, you're adults now, but you were in this church when you were kids. My father would regularly say to my brother and to me, being born in a barn doesn't make you a horse. Now, it's kind of corny, isn't it? Being born in a barn doesn't make you a horse. Being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. And what was his concern? His concern was that Ray and I would identify with the culture of the church, but never receive the Christ of the church. And I worry about that. And if you're a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, you need to worry about that happening here. You need to pray for your kids that are under your care, and you need regularly to confront them with the good news of the gospel. Now, you may be here and be where these Jewish people were. You may have the culture of church and think that that brings you fellowship with God, but the Scripture teaches everywhere, again, the central message, the unity of this holy book, it teaches everywhere, Old Testament and New, this message, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul expands that teaching that I just read to you of salvation being all a gift of God in Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 23, and I read just parts of those verses. There he says, no one will be declared righteous in his, that is God's sight, by observing the law. That means by, you know, trying to be good, to please God with your works. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The harder you try to be good in your own strength, 
the more you will see what a sinner you are and how much you need Jesus. But he goes on to say, but now a righteousness of God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, unity of Scripture, the Old Testament testified to, uh, law and the prophets for a Jew meant the whole of the Old Testament. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Your knowledge of Christian doctrine cannot take away your sins. Your acts of religious devotion cannot erase your offenses. Your parents' genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ does not pass to you with their DNA. You must acknowledge your sinful condition before God and ask Him to take away your sins on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can do that right now. And I don't care if you tune out from the rest of this service, if you spend some time with the risen Christ telling him you're a, savior, a sinner and you want him to be your Savior, you pray right now and receive him. What better way to start off the new year than to have sins forgiven and have Jesus in your life? Now, the people who should have been looking for the birth of Jesus as the central event in their religious experience, missed it. Well, God drew those who were far removed from gospel advantage to his Savior, the Savior of the world. We need to remember the story of the Magi when we tell people about Jesus Christ, when we get up the courage to share our faith, to do what we should do if we really believe the gospel. We need to remember the story because it teaches us that there's no one so far from the gospel, so lost, that the Spirit of God cannot break and create faith in and bring to Christ. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. People far from Jesus come to him. Jesus is to be worshipped. The Magi leave Jerusalem for Bethlehem, and as they do, the sign that they received in the east uh, reappears. It guides them to the house where Jesus now lives, verse 9. No manger here. He's in in a house. Matthew tells us in verse 11, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. Now, all through the narrative, Matthew stresses that this Jesus is to be worshiped. The Magi arrive in Jerusalem, and in verse 2 we read that they're asking, where is this one who is born, the king of the Jews, We saw his star in the east, and we have come to what? To worship him. They searched out Jesus, and when they find him, toward the end of the story, they bow before him and worship. Now, now think about what's going on here. Matthew is a Jewish guy. He knows Deuteronomy. He knows that the Lord our God is one. He knows the Ten Commandments that you're not to worship anything in heaven or on earth except the one true God. He knows all about that. He knows that God is a jealous God, that he will not share his honor with others. When Matthew records that these people, these Gentiles, worship Jesus, he is telling us that Jesus is truly God of truly God. That he is God in the flesh, and that he's got to be worshipped. 
because he's the God of the universe. Do you worship Jesus? Do you really worship him? Um, Will you put Jesus out of sight when you put away the Christmas decorations momentarily? Jesus is not simply to be followed as a moral example. He is not to be simply contemplated and praised and prayed to when we gather on the Lord's day in his house. He is to be the one before whom we continuously bow, moment by moment, day by day. The one whom we continually acknowledge as absolute Savior and Sovereign and Lord of our lives. Jesus is properly worshipped when he takes precedence over anything else that is in our lives. He is worshipped when no one and nothing has the place in our lives that is the first place. That is where the Magi are right now. They can think of nothing but getting to Jesus. There is no hardship that they will not endure, no obstacle that they won't try to overcome to bow their bodies and their hearts and their souls before the God of the universe. These learned and wealthy sages in bowing before the infant Jesus acknowledge, adore, and praise him. They honor and praise his current and future glory. But they also, in bowing, pledge to him their obedience. When you, when you bow before a Lord, you are saying that when he speaks, you listen and you do what he wants. I love to know what they said as they worshiped Jesus. Now, I'm one of the ones that, you know, would have liked to add a lot more detail and would have lost the central message, probably. But I love to know what they, would, what they said when they worshiped Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us. What he does tell us is that they opened their treasures. It's treasure chest. You know, big strong boxes, possibly. They opened their treasures and presented him with gold, with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. These were very expensive items in the New Testament world, and worship always involves sacrifice. When those people in the Old Testament brought a calf or they brought a lamb or a goat, that was the means of production. That was their wealth. Worship always involves sacrifice and giving of gifts. The worth of God to us is expressed in part by the material sacrifice that we're willing to make, the gifts we're willing to bring to Him. Our gifts are our willing responses to His greatness and His goodness. Now, most of you who are here today, I guess, I hope and pray, have been spiritually where these magi were in, your, in their hearts. You've been there. You saw who Christ was. You bowed and you worshipped the Savior of the world. You acknowledged your sin. You trusted in His sacrifice to be the payment for your sin. You gave Him your heart, your life. You gave Him all that you had. You said, Lord, I want you more than anything else in this life. Take all that I am, all that I have, I am yours. It was a Romans 12:1 thing. In response to what God had done for you, you gave up your life as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing unto the Lord. Question, could you, could I put myself in that place, the place of the Magi today? Does Christ have first place in our lives now? As we come to the table of the Lord, let's examine our hearts, allow the Spirit of God to work the one who discerns what's in our souls, in our hearts. And if he points out things to us that have taken the God spot, let's smash those idols by his grace. We won't do it by ourselves. Ask him to help you to give those things up, to give you the grace to put him back in the place where he deserves to be. And if you haven't come to that spot yet, if you haven't accepted Jesus as Savior Lord, as you see this sacrament, that points to the sacrifice that Jesus made, the gift that God gave to us that we might live eternally, would you do business with the risen Christ? Father, speak to us now in the sacrament, even as you have spoken to us through your word. We pray in Christ Jesus' name, and for his honor and for his glory. Amen.